you here uh, this morning. I want to give you an invitation to go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Luke uh, chapter 14. That's where we're going to spend our time together this morning is in Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, we'd love for you to have that in front of you. Um, if you uh, didn't bring a Bible and, and there's a Bible around you that, that we've provided for and you'd like to use that, please feel free. In fact, uh, we'll be on page 873 in those Bibles that we've provided for you. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have a Bible, that's our free gift to you. Go help. Go ahead and take that one home, make it your own, put your name in the front of it, and get to it, and that is now your Bible. And so we would love to give you uh, that gift. Also, if you want to go digital and turn on your Bible this morning, we would love for you to do that as well. And uh, we'll also provide all the scriptures for you up on the screen. Luke chapter 14, so we're going to be spending uh, some of our time. Over the last couple weeks, we've been in a series called Dirty Laundry. Now, that's something that every single one of us has in common. We all have some dirty laundry in our lives. Now, how we deal with that dirty laundry is probably a little bit differently, although there's probably some things that we have in common. For most of us, we try to contain the dirty laundry. And so usually the dirty laundry goes in a hamper, or for some of you, it goes in a hamper that's hidden in a closet because the hamper tends to get a little bit full. Or when it's time to do the laundry, you take the laundry to the laundry room because you can kind of hide that while the laundry's in process, right? And the thing is, is when we have people over to our homes, we tend not to bring them into the laundry room because that's where the dirty laundry is being processed. Like you've probably never invited anybody to your home and took them to the laundry room. In fact, you've probably never been invited to somebody's home and said, would you like a tour of the laundry room? And even if they said that, you went, no, I don't need to be in there. But what we've been doing every week is actually doing exactly that. Uh, We've been saying, let's get together over the next few weeks and take a look at the dirty laundry. And our hope has been that together we could kind of do the laundry every Sunday morning as we talk about some of the things that are really, really, really important to us as a church, what we would even call some of our core values. And what we've been talking about is those things and then talking about how those things get kind of messed up or dirtied in our lives. And our hope is is that we come together so we worship Jesus and exalt his name. And then as we open up his word and we come before him, that he could wash away the crimson stain that's on our laundry each week. So this is all about him and it's all about his word and all about what he does in our lives. And uh, we started the series where Laura Thompson, our children's ministry director, spoke about getting into God's word because one of our core values is growing people change. And we think there's something significant about getting into God's word and hearing his word and then doing his word. Uh, Last week we talked about Mary and Martha and that we're a church that's a hard-working church. I absolutely believe that whatever God calls us to, that together we can accomplish that. That uh, up to this date, there's never been anything that this church hasn't been able to accomplish by God's grace. And that's because I think we're filled with people who love Jesus and are also willing to roll up their sleeves and get to work and get stuff done. And I love that about this church. But what we saw as we looked at Mary and Martha is that sometimes we can be so busy doing things for Jesus that we forget to spend time with Jesus. And what Jesus tells Martha is that that time with him is something that no one can ever take from us, and it's the better thing. And what I want to talk about this week is church clothes. Now, church clothes have kind of a significant thing in my journey, kind of a significant place in my own spiritual walk. When I was about 10 years old, my parents went through a divorce, and like all divorce, it was a long process, and it was messy, and there was all kinds of stuff going on in the life of my family. And uh, not only that, but shortly after my parents were divorced, my sister uh, came down with a a pretty serious illness and was diagnosed with some stuff. And so uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that we as a family um, were both dysfunctional and really jacked up. And there was a lot of stuff going on in all of our lives. And uh, and so my mom decided that we as a a broken family now, we're going to go to church because that's what we needed. We were going to go to church. And so I told her I didn't want to go to church. <clears throat> I didn't really know what church was, but it just didn't sound like fun. And like Sunday morning was time for cartoons and sleeping in and, and that kind of stuff. And she told me, um, she tells me this all the time. She said, I, bring, I brought you into this world. <clears throat> I will take you out of it. So under the threat of death, I got dragged to church. Now, I didn't really know much about church. I had attended a couple VBSs as a, a small child. And so we went to church and I didn't really know what to experience. And we walked into this church that I don't know how my mom decided. I don't know if she threw darts at a wall and that was the one. I don't know if she went in alphabetical order. Uh, I don't know what she did, but she chose this church. And we went to this church. And this first church that we went to confirmed all my fears and all my beliefs about church. 
Uh, we walked in the door and instantly realized that we did not belong, and people probably didn't really want us there, and, and so we kind of were uncomfortable, and all of a sudden noticed, even as a, a small child at this point in my life, probably about eighth grade, that there were rules in this church, and that they were unspoken rules, that you, somehow you were supposed to know what to wear, where to sit, where not to sit, how to, befa- how to behave, how not to behave. Yeah, and I'll never forget that we sat down, and there was kind of like the unofficial start to church. So kind of this family walked in, and it was kind of like almost a wedding processional. That this family walked in, and everyone kind of turned around in awe of them, and uh, was like, oh, they're here. We can, we can start now. And they kind of came up towards the front and sat down. And uh, like I said, I didn't know anything about church. Or anything about, I thought maybe one of them was Jesus. I mean, it just seemed like everybody was really excited that they were there, and I didn't know why. So I thought maybe... Maybe one of them is Jesus. And, and I remember that, that just what was shown to us was that this family was really important, that dad got up and said some words before worship, mom got up, did some stuff, the first child got up and prayed, the second child read scripture, and I think the third child did the benediction. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe they do that from time to time. Week after week, it was the same family over and over and over again. And I just thought maybe they were Jesus. And so uh, well, what happened was is all of a sudden we realized that we were not dressed appropriately to be a part of this church. So this real mysterious thing happened in my, wife, my life that my mom went out and bought church clothes. And if you've ever grown up with church clothes, you know, church clothes are like the sacred clothing that you only wear on a Sunday. And, and just my opinion, and you, you can feel however you feel, but I got the microphone right now. I, I thought they were really uncomfortable. Like I didn't really like the slags. I didn't really like the dress shirt and the collars like poking me in the chin. And, and for me, church was like two hours of just crucial punishment. I mean, it was just like, it was just like, man, this, this is bad. Like I, it was the worst two hours of my life. I had to go hang out with people who surely did not like me. And because they didn't like me, I didn't like them. And I had to wear really uncomfortable clothes to do it. And I'll never forget that at some point mom made the decision that we were no longer going to go, going to go to that church. And I think the reason she decided that we weren't going to go to that church is because Jesus had actually stopped attending before we had stopped attending. And, and so I thought, this is awesome. We're not going to go to church anymore. And then she informed me, no, no, I picked another church for us to go to. And I'm like, we really got to do this again? And we got to go through this process one more time. And so we went to this other church, and I'll never forget, I get dropped off in a Sunday school classroom. Uh, here we go again. Except the difference was, this time, the lead pastor of that church was teaching my Sunday school class. Now I thought, I can't get away with anything. There's no joking around. There's no skipping out early. Like this dude is here. And not only is he here, he is wearing a liturgical black pulpit robe, which terrified me. I thought, I don't know what my mom signed us up for. Like she's driving me up a class. This dude is wearing a robe in my classroom. And all of a sudden I realized there's all these people in this classroom that I know. And I sit down and I discover it's an eighth grade confirmation class. And I'm like, I, I thought Jesus went to the last church, and he doesn't go there anymore, and I don't even know what's going on here. This dude's wearing a robe, and I'll never forget that first Sunday we were there, he was talking about church clothes. And I think one of the questions that came up in the class was, why does Pastor Dave wear the black robe? And so he sat down and talked to us about the fact that he wore this robe so that Sunday morning wasn't about him. It wasn't about his fashion. It wasn't about the suit that he was wearing. That every single Sunday when he showed up to preach the gospel, everything was plain about him, except for his socks. And I'll tell you about his socks in a minute. But what he read for us was this passage. He goes, I want you to all open up your Bibles. It's awesome. So we opened up our Bibles. I didn't have a Bible. Somebody gave me a Bible. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And they're having this conversation, and Jesus tells them, basically, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. He says, even though you're cleansed on the outside, even though your outward appearance is beautiful, on the inside, you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I'll never forget, he said, here's the thing. I would rather have a a church full of people wearing normal clothes who are seeking Jesus than a church full of people wearing suits who really are whitewashed tombs. And I'd I'd been in a Sunday school class before and it didn't go so well, so I I raised my hand. I didn't think it was going so well. I said, so what you're saying is we don't need to wear church clothes anymore. And he said, no church clothes. I said, Mom, we got to start going here. (laughs) The pastor 
said, no more church clothes. And so she asked him, is this true? And he's like, yeah, he can wear whatever he wants. I'm like, shorts, sandals, T-shirt, my kind of church. In fact, what he said is he wore the robe each week so he would look plain. So he wouldn't be a whitewashed tomb. So it wouldn't be like, look how dressed up I am in my three-piece suit. He wore a robe. But what he did every week is he wore really flashy socks. And I don't know why. This was tradition in our church. I don't even know if they do it anymore. Maybe they do. But like the pastor during worship like sat up in a chair in front. I don't know why they do that. But he sat up there. And what he would do to our confirmation class is every now and then he'd pull up his robe and show off his socks. And we'd be in the back. We're like, yeah, he's got those socks. And he had red socks and blue socks and green socks. And usually, like at Christmas time, he had socks with like Christmas lights around them. And I don't know if anybody else noticed, but we thought it was a really big deal. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. We could go to a church where it doesn't matter what we wear. That we don't have to get all dressed up because I think one of the lies that we buy into in the church world is that if we somehow wear the right kind of clothes, people will assume we're living the right kind of life. Now, here's the thing. If you like to dress up for church, that's awesome. If you like to become comfortable to church, that's awesome. Let's not believe the lie that the name brand on my pants... And the name brand on your pants and the logo on my shirt and the logo on your shirt are really any indication of where we stand with God. In fact, I think what happens to us is we begin to believe that maybe what we wear and how we act in church has something to do with where we stand with God. In fact, I think in just being very, very general, I think there's a few places people usually land when it comes to their participation in a local church. I think there's some people who become church attenders. And what they decide is that, hey, they're going to get plugged in and they're going to get to know some people. And the mentality becomes something like this. Hey, I'll get plugged into a church and I'll attend just enough. And somehow I am both saved by Jesus and growing spiritually if I attend just enough. And they become what we call church attenders. Hey, some people would even talk about that. I'm an attender at such and such church. Now, there's a step up. You can graduate from church attender. And some people do that. They graduate from church attender. What they become is a religious person. And see, a religious person decides, hey, it's not just enough to attend. There's some unspoken rules that we're supposed to adhere ourselves to. So you walk a certain way. You talk a certain way. You do certain things. And the mentality is, I get saved and I grow closer to Jesus by the things I do and by the things that I do not do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. And we become religious. And now there's other people that go a completely different route. And they go, hey, we're not just going to become attenders, and we're not just going to become religious. They decide that they become what I call the nice guy or the nice girl. And you've met the nice guy or the nice girl. They show up, and they're always bubbly, and they're always happy. That kind of looks like they're always smiling. And even when they stub their toe, like, their toe, like rainbows and butterflies come out, which is not what comes out when you stub your toe. And what they think is, hey, I'll somehow get saved just by the way I treat people. And I go closer to Christ just based on the way I love people. And the nice guy and the nice girl think, well, if anything, I'm better than the religious person because that person needs a little bit more sunshine and probably a little bit of Prozac. So they got the nice guy and the nice girl. And then maybe you have the worst of them all, and you get the social Christian. Uh, the social Christian is just like the social smoker, the, the social drinker, that Christianity is something they do when they're around that group of people. In fact, we live in a culture where 80% of the United States of America claim that they're Christian. And see, I would say the social Christian is someone that says, because I was born in America, and because I have a close family member that's somehow connected to a church, or I used to go to church, I'm somehow saved, although I'm not sure how. I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure you're going to heaven. And that's the social Christian. You even might even like the thing on Facebook that says, 90% of you do not have the courage, like, oh, I'm not like that one, because I want to go to heaven. And that's the social Christian. Now, my hope is, is when you hear that list, you're a little bit disillusioned. You go, I don't want to be any of those, because here's the reality. We don't really want you to be any of those either. And in fact, there's one that, that I left off, which I really think is the goal. And in fact, this is what we pray for you. This is what we hope for you. This is why we pray and we toil and we work, is because this is what we want to see happen in your life. And no matter where you are, maybe you came here this morning kicking and screaming. This is what we desperately want for you. 
And maybe you've been following Jesus for years. This is what we desperately want for you. In fact, it's so important to us that it's one of our core values. And the core value reads something like this. We want to make disciples who make disciples. See, I think the word disciple is really, really significant. There's all kinds of things Christians call themselves. In fact, it gets kind of overwhelming sometimes. You ask somebody, are you a Christian? I'm not a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Okay, that's awesome. I'm not a Christ follower. I'm a believer. I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm saved. And you go, well, what are we talking about here? And so we've created all these different names, but I think we see within the confines of Scripture that the word disciple is really, really important and really, really significant. And we'll put the scripture up on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. Uh, if you've been around church, you've heard this before, that this is called the Great Commission. Hey, this is Jesus' eternal commandment. This is what he wants everybody to do. This is all-encompassing. If you've been saved by Jesus by grace through faith, if you belong to him, if you're a new creation in Christ, if you've been regenerated in your heart by Jesus, if you believe that he died for you and rose again for you and you've given your life to him. This is what he desires. And this is what we as a church believe he desires for every single one of us. And so that's why our, our vision statement is to be a, a church where lives are changed by Jesus and disciples are made is because Jesus says this. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make, what's the word? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and surely behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I think when Jesus gives this, he's being very, very intentional. I think he's being very, very specific. I think he's being very, very clear. And see, there's all kinds of words Jesus could have used, going to all the world to make converts, Going to all the world to make church attenders. Going to all the world and make nice people. Going to all the world to make social Christians who will like my statuses on Facebook. But what he says is, go into all the world and make disciples. And see, what's alarming to me is this word disciple, this term disciple, isn't one that's always talked about in churches. And what happens is, is if we only talk about salvation, but we never talk about discipleship, we end up creating Christians who love Jesus and follow Jesus until they run into some uncertainty or a little bit of opposition in their lives. And see, I think it's really, really important for us to understand what the term disciple means. Because the word disciple is foundational to our lives if we want to follow what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. And this is one of the things that's really, really interesting. Is in Scripture, every disciple of Christ is a believer. But not every believer is necessarily a disciple. That you and I have a decision we need to make on how we'll follow Jesus. In fact, Oswald Sanders, who's a theologian, Christ follower. He wrote some really great devotionals. This is a line from one of his devotionals. He said, a disciple is, so, is simply a learner. The word comes from the root that means thought accompanied by endeavor. So a disciple of Christ can be defined as a learner of Jesus who accepts the teaching of his master, not only in belief, but in lifestyle. That a disciple, someone says that Jesus, first of all, I see you as a master. I see you as authority in my life. And so what I need is a word from you. And when I get that word from you, what I want to do is I want to do it in my life. I want to hear from you so I can do what you're telling me to do, that your teaching would be lived out in my life. Because I believe in you, because I trust you, and because you're an authority over me. And see, sometimes the reason we have so many people who don't choose to take these next steps on their journey is because I think Billy Graham said it best. He said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost us everything. And the reality is that salvation happens in a moment, but discipleship is a process that takes place for a lifetime. 
Salvation is something that God does for you. Discipleship is something you do with God. In fact, the reason I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 this morning is because I believe what we all need is to hear from Jesus this morning. And in Luke chapter 14, Luke tells us the story in his gospel of Jesus traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And what we know is that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem because he is going to die on the cross. In fact, right away what we're going to see in Luke chapter 14 is Luke tells us that Jesus is surrounded by a big crowd of people. And what most people believe is that the reason that he's surrounded by so many people is because there's all kinds of people traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And if you've been around church a long time or you grew up on Sunday school, you know the Passover meal is what we call the Last Supper. Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples, and it's how we celebrate communion because he breaks the bread and he gives them the wine. So Jesus' death on the cross is only days away. And what happens is back in those times, if you were traveling, you try to get in a group because there's safety in numbers. And I think Jesus not only had the safety and number of things going, but I think people heard, hey, Jesus is on his way, and we can be a part of that group. And so more and more people started surrounding this group of people around Jesus. And what happens is people are beginning to make up their minds about Jesus. They're hearing his teaching. They've heard about his miracles. And I think there's this movement happening where people are going, we're going to follow him. We're going to follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus into Jerusalem because he's the Messiah. He's the one. We believe in him. And don't miss this next part. Because I believe out of love for those people, Jesus has an extremely hard conversation. There's all these people going, yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus, we, we, we believe in him, and we believe these facts about him, these things about him, and we're going to follow him. And Jesus turns around and says, hey, for those of you who are thinking about being my disciples, here's some things you need to think about. Like, don't just make this decision on a whim. Don't just make this decision on the way to your Passover meal. In fact, what he says is, there's a couple things that you need to consider. And I believe that out of love, not of compassion, not of mercy, not of grace, Jesus says very, very hard words to these people. And I think that same Jesus out of that same love and that same mercy and that same grace has some very difficult words for us this morning. And the reality is if I didn't love you, I wouldn't share these with you. Because sometimes what you and I need are hard words. Because hard words sometimes create a, hard, a soft heart. Hard words penetrate sometimes the most stiff, most hard areas of our hearts. And if we only hear soft words, sometimes those soft words never penetrate our hardened hearts. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 14, begins to address the crowd, just like I believe he'll address us today. And this is what Luke chapter 14, verse 25 says. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says requirement number one to be one of his disciples is that we would love God more than we love anyone else. The number one requirement to be a disciple is that we would love God more than anybody else. Now, now here's where we have to be careful. Because we hear the words of Jesus, and you ask the question, you go, did Jesus really mean that because we are in relationship with him, because we've been saved with him, that we're supposed to go home and be like, yo, mom, yo, dad, hate your guts. Like, is that really what he means? Like, does he really mean that if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're supposed to go home and look at your spouse and be like, hate you, hate you, only wish the worst for you? Is that really what Jesus is saying? And the answer is no. Jesus is using an analogy. What he's using is, is really two contrasting views. He goes, if you love me, then your love for other people has to look differently because your love for me would take priority over every other relationship. 
that I would be in a completely different ballpark, a completely different category than every other human relationship that you could have. And so he says, if you want to love me, then you have to hate everybody else. And he doesn't really mean hate. What he means is we would love him above all other relationships, that we would love him more than anyone else. That if you're married, that you would actually love God more than your spouse. That if you have children, that you would actually love them, that you would love God more than you love your children. That if you have friends, that you would love God more than you love your friends. If you have parents, that you would love God more than your parents. And Jesus calls his disciple to full allegiance and full devotion to him and to him alone. And see, I think the reason this is so important is because as a believer, as a disciple, you will experience relational conflict and pressure to make Jesus less of a priority. That there will be people in your life who will try to talk you down from the Jesus ledge. There will be people that go, listen, you're putting too much stock into this thing. Do you really need to pray? Do you really need to go to church? Do you really need to do these things? Can't you just, it's a little bright near you. Can't you just turn it down a little bit? And see, what Jesus says is that if there's any other relationship that's more important than he is, is ultimately at some point we, were, we will forsake him and choose that relationship. And for some of you, you've experienced that before. That when you became a Christ follower, your family wasn't all that excited. In fact, for some of you, that's part of your story is that your family had so bought into a certain belief system or denomination that when you said, hey, I got saved by Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for me and he rose again for me and I believe that he's made me a new creation in him that uh, by grace through faith I'm saved and it's by Christ alone and he is the way, the truth, and the life. You had a family, but whoa, 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 whoa. It's not how we roll in this family. Like, you know, if you do this, What's Granny going to think? How are you going to explain this to her? You know, if you do this, Christmas and Easter is going to get really weird every year, and it'll be your fault. And see, families have a way of guilting us, don't they? And Jesus goes, listen, listen. I've given you a command to honor your mother and father. But you need to love me more than you love them. Maybe for some of you, that's your story, is that when you got married, you both believed the same thing. And then at some point, one of you became a believer. Let's say it was you, because you're here this morning. The other one didn't. The other one's going, do you really have to do all this stuff? You really need to go to church all the time? You really got to pray before every meal? Like, do you really got to read your Bible? How come we don't do the things we used to do because of Jesus? And you go, yeah. And maybe it even gets to the point where your spouse comes to you and goes, you know what, if you don't give up on this Jesus thing, I'll divorce you. And I think according to Luke chapter 14 and other scriptures, our response would be, is, hey, I don't want to be divorced. I love you. I made a commitment to love you till the day that I die. But if you make me choose you or Jesus, Jesus wins every single time. And isn't that what happens with friends? That maybe you have friends from back in the day and you get saved by Jesus, and all of a sudden you start hanging out with him, and like, man, you're not the guy you used to be. You're not the girl you used to be. And here's the pressure, right? We go dark, we go secret, and we go quiet with our faith. It's what I call Christian ninjas. We go stealthy, unheard, unseen, and then this is how you justify it. Maybe I'll live in such a way that at some point they'll ask me a question. Maybe at some point they'll go, hey, you seem a little different. Could you tell me about that? But the reality is, instead of loving Jesus and following him, we go, I will try to fit the mold of the world and those around me so nobody knows that I love him and that I follow him. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you're a Christian. And your dating relationship really involves being in a relationship with someone that doesn't love Jesus, and that relationship's all about breaking commands and having what you call fun, and you call it love. And Jesus goes, who do you choose, me or them? Jesus says, if you truly want to be my disciple, your love for me, your allegiance to me, your devotion to me 
has to be top priority and most important. And listen, I'll just be completely transparent with you. This is a, a difficult conversation in my home because I have little kids. And my five-year-old has asked me recently, Dad, who do you love more than me? And I don't ever want to lie to him. So I told him, well, I kind of love Jesus more than you. And the first time he heard that, it was hard. I mean, he, <laughs> and I'm like, listen, I'm not saying that I don't love you. And what I told him is, I love Jesus so much that it makes me a better dad. It makes me a better husband. It makes me a better man. The more I love Jesus, the better I'll be to your mom and the better I'll be to you. And it's more important, you know what it's more important? For you to love Jesus more than you love me. What's interesting then is now he's trying to figure out how to handle this. And so he'll ask me, how much more than me, how, how much more do you love Jesus? And he's like, this much? Is it this much? And you know, Jesus calls his disciples, those who follow him, to love him unrelentlessly. I mean, just to say, hey, there's nothing more important than you. And listen, this is why this is so important. It's because right now in our country, you might get some relational conflict you might have some people unlike you on Facebook and not follow you on Twitter, and maybe you don't get invited to the parties like you used to. But right now, today, in Egypt, there are people being killed on the street simply because they love Jesus. All they've done has been saved by him. Churches being set on fire, families being murdered because they love Jesus. And in some cultures, it is a death sentence to become a Christian. And Jesus said, would you be willing to follow me if it cost you your life? Who would you choose over Jesus? Who are you choosing over Jesus? Because then he says this, requirement number two is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, one of the things we have to remember about Luke is Luke is not a firsthand witness. What Luke tells us in the open paragraph of his gospel is that he's a friend of Paul. He knows Paul really well. But he's been hired is, is, is by his friend Theophilus to be an investigated reporter. That he's supposed to collect all the data and do all the interviews, and his letter is actually, the, the Gospel of Luke is his letter back to Theophilus saying, after all the interviews, after all the facts, doing all this, this is what I believe to be true. And I imagine what happens in Luke 14 is he had to get somebody that made it all the way through the whole process to know what Jesus kept saying. But I've got to imagine that every time Jesus made one of, me, one of these statements, people checked out. Hey, Jesus, we want to follow you. Hate your mother, your brother, your sister, your spouse. See ya. We'll go with that group. Jesus goes, hey, wait, maybe you didn't hear it. Not enough of you walked away that time. If you want to follow me, bear your cross and come after me. And if you're unwilling to do that, you cannot be my disciple. Because what Jesus says is, on one hand, we need to deny ourselves. And on one hand... We need to take up our cross. What it really means is not only are we supposed to love Jesus more than we love other people, but we're supposed to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And we do a pretty good job of loving ourselves. We do a pretty good job of taking care of ourselves. That's when Jesus gives us the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, you take pretty good care of yourself. If you would take the same amount of care you take about yourself to other people, the world would be a better place. Because we love ourselves. See, part of following Jesus is not only do I love you more than I love all these relationships, I love you more than I love myself. C.S. Lewis once wrote this about worship. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget all about yourself together or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget all about yourself altogether. But when we come before him, I go, listen, when we see him for who he is, 
we're forced to see us for who we are. And I don't know how you stand before a holy, holy creator, God who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and go, don't I look good? Don't I look awesome? Scripture says Jesus, by the will of his power, holds the stars and the moon and the sky. When was the last time we did anything like that? The Bible opens that God speaks and creates, and sometimes we think we're greater than he is. He says, if you truly want to follow me, that you would love me more than you would love yourself. But see, a piece of this would be that you and I would give up this illusion that we have about our lives, that we control our lives, that somehow we make plans and we set goals and we can control everything. Like that's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus goes, listen, you know what happens is we try to predict our lives and we try to save our lives. We try to enrich our lives and we do it by our will and what we want, and by our 10-year plan and what we hope to accomplish. And he goes, if you try to save your life by your will and your plan, surely you'll lose it. He goes, but if you would give over control, if you would see me as your master, if you would put me in authority, if you would hear my commands and do them, then surely you would save your life. See, what Jesus says when he says that we should take up our cross and follow him, he asks the question, how much did we really mean today when we sang, I surrender all? Right, because that song was awesome. The worship team rocked that song. And we get up here like, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus. And because Jesus attends Meadowland Church, he's in the back and he's like, <clears throat> you say all? You're like, okay, let me try. Oh, some to G. He's like, do you say some? A small percentage. Lord, please don't correct me again. I'm trying to do better than I did yesterday. And see, where in the Bible do we ever see that Jesus said, I died for a percentage of you? Where did Jesus ever say, hey, if you let me be your autopilot or your co-captain? And the question is, have we really surrendered to him? Have we really come before him and said, it's not about me. It's not about what I want, but it's about you. A.W. Tozer, who's a theologian, he wrote some really great devotionals, like my utmost for his highest. He says this, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. See, part of it is if I surrender, it means I give myself to Jesus so that he sits on the throne. And it's no longer about my desires and my wants and me, but it's about his desires and his wants and his glory. And this week has been especially difficult because as I wrote this message over and over again, I was reminded by the men and the women who used to be part of this church and at some point decided that Jesus was only good enough for the cross but not good enough for the throne. And see, it's ever so subtle it goes something like, well, I want to be saved, but I also want what I want. I want God's blessing on my goals. I want God's blessing on my priorities. I want Jesus, but I want the perfect house with the fence and the dog and the 2.5 kids. And that means I've got to do some stuff that maybe Jesus doesn't want me to. But can I have all of it at once? And what happens is, is they begin to surrender their faith. 
they begin to surrender their belief in Jesus for what they desire. And slowly over time, they quit reading their Bibles. They quit praying. They quit repenting of their sin. They quit serving. They quit giving. They step out of the community. And then eventually, they quit Christ. They quit their marriages. They quit their kids. And honestly, none of them are happy. None of them have experienced joy. None of them have experienced purpose. None of them have experienced satisfaction. And not one single one of them will leave a legacy that lasts more than one generation. And it's both heartbreaking and infuriating that somehow people would give up on Jesus to pursue other things. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross. And see, the reason this is so important, the reason that we would commit ourselves to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you more than I love me is because at some point, listen, you and I will experience opposition for our faith. At some point, there will be conflict, there will be problems, there will be persecution. And if I love me more than I love Jesus, you know what happens when it gets a little bit hard? I go, Jesus, you're not holding up your end of the deal because I'm feeling a little bit of pain and I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable. But if it becomes about him and his glory and who he is, that even when it gets hard and even when there's a little bit of persecution, I go, it's not about me. It's not about my dreams. It's not about my perfect little house with the perfect little fence and 2.5 kids and a dog. But Jesus, it's about you. And even though it's hard, it's about you. And see, part of being a disciple of Jesus is a willingness to suffer the way that Jesus did. At best, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. His own half-brother, James, says, I didn't believe any of this until... I saw the empty tomb for myself. Because honestly, what would it take for one of your siblings to convince you that they're God? His family thought he was nuts. His friends betrayed him. Religious people wanted to kill him. Jesus spent a lot of time alone in prayer. And ultimately, he was opposed beaten, put to death on a cross because of what he believed. And the apostles followed and went to death for what they believed and were persecuted and murdered because of their love for him. I was actually reading this week about a missionary organization that once you complete all of your work, all your studying to become a missionary. Kind of the last thing they do, the last passage of right, is right before they send you off, literally, they have you pack a coffin. And they send the coffin with them into the mission field. So that in the event that they're murdered, the coffin's there, and the coffin is then filled with things that they want to leave their family, like letters or possessions. And it's the last thing to say, Jesus, I believe you've called me into the mission field. I believe that you want me to go share the gospel. And no matter what the cost, I pack my coffin because I give you my life. And if this is the result of me going, then so be it. And see, what happens is because we don't really like that Jesus says, take up your cross. Because we look at it this way, right? We wake up in the morning and we go to start our car and the battery is dead. And we go, I just got to take up my cross today, Jesus. The car won't start. I take up my cross. It's not what he meant. Somebody at work gives you a little bit of criticism and you're like, all for Jesus, I just take up my cross today. It's a little painful. We make some really bad decisions then we face the consequences for those decisions. We're like, all for Jesus, I I suffer all for him. That's not what he was talking about. In our culture and all time, instead of saying take up the cross, Jesus would have said, take up your electric chair. Take up your lethal injection. When he talks about take up your cross, he's talking about the Roman device for torture, murder, and death. Not the battery of the car not starting. And when Jesus says you have to be willing to take up your cross, he says you have to be willing to go where I'm going to go. 
And you have to be willing that if somebody put a gun to your head and said, if you say yes to believing him, you'll give your life, that you would be willing to say, then send me home to Jesus because I will never deny his name. And Jesus says that one of the requirements to follow him is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And see, if we love ourselves more than we love him, we're tempted to take up our comforter instead of taking up our cross. And we begin to see is that if we love him, then every trial, every suffering, every painful moment is about him and his glory, not us and our desires and our wants. The third requirement to be a disciple is this. Disciples don't give up. I love this one. Disciples don't give up. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, which, by the way, building a tower sounds awesome. We should do that sometime. A tower would be awesome. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first stand, sit down, and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is unable to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. She said, listen, my disciples finish. My disciples finish. They allow the good work that I began in them to come to completion. That my disciples understand their conversion, the moment they believed is the beginning. Discipleship is all of life. And then when they will die, and when they die, they will be with me in heaven, and that's the beginning of eternity. And that's kind of how it goes. That you and I have a choice to live this life for him. And Jesus says, consider the cost. And Jesus is making this really clear up front, that this is a lifetime commitment. That this is a Jesus not just for today, not just because the environment in church was so good that I want to believe in you, not because the music was so moving, not because that prayer was so good, but because I believe in you, because you saved me by grace, through faith, I believe you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, that no one comes to the Father except through you. And because I believe that, I give you my life and I give you all of it. So we live in a culture where we take the easy way. We want the road of least resistance. And Jesus says, if you follow me, it's a road of hardship and difficulty. It will be hard. Much like getting married is easy. Like, you can go to Vegas and be married by 6 o'clock tonight if you really wanted to. Getting married is easy. But staying married and having 50, 60, 70 years of joyful marriage, that's hard. Making babies is fun. Raising babies is hard. Getting saved can happen in an instant. But discipleship will cost you everything. And see, for some of us, maybe there's this wrestling because somebody told you, if, if you would just believe in Jesus, he would fix everything. Like, Jesus makes everything better. He'll turn over all the bad things that are happening in your life. The sun will shine brighter. The grass will be greener. The, the flowers will smell better. You'll never get sick. You'll have all prosperity. And if you, would just, if you just want Jesus to get involved in your life, you just raise your hand and you say yes to him, and then Jesus now becomes your manager, and he manages all your life so that you'll be happy. And you're like, well, who doesn't want that? And you say yes to him. But what Jesus says is it's about a commitment. It's about allowing him to start a work and then to continue a work in your life. And he goes, okay, maybe you didn't get the tower one. So he says, or what about a king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says, requirement number four is to forsake all that you have. And Jesus says, let me, let me be really clear about this. 
Not only to love me more than you love other people. Not only to love me more than you love yourself. Not only are you willing to suffer like the way I suffered. But what you ultimately say to disciples, not only is Jesus the Messiah of my life, not only is he the Lord of my life, not only is he my Savior, but he's the source of my identity, the source of my security, and the source of the satisfaction I have in my life. That I'm no longer a consumer looking for the next thrill and the next high, and I need this and I need that to feel like I'm complete. That rather that Jesus is that for us. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you have to sign a commitment to be poor. He's not saying you can't have anything. What he is saying is, wherever you get your source of pleasure, wherever you get your feeling of security, wherever you get your source of identity, ultimately that's God for you. And whatever you get those sources of identity, security, and pleasure are ultimately the things that you'll worship. And ultimately the things that you will allow to take first priority in your life. And Jesus goes, if you follow me, forsake all things. Don't trust things that will end up in the trash. Trust me who is eternal and everlasting. The fifth thing that Jesus says is this. Disciples remain in Christ. This is how he finishes his talk in Luke chapter 14. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, listen, if you follow me, you'll endure. If you follow me, you'll remain. If you follow me, we'll never fall out because we'll complete. And one of the big questions that we get all the time is, what about somebody that at one point said they were saved, said they were loved by Jesus, said they loved Jesus, said that God had done this work in them, and then later they denounce the faith and they walk away and they say they don't believe anymore. What's up with that? And I'd say what Jesus says is they never actually believed. They might have known some facts about him. They may have been able to attribute some truths to him. But ultimately... That regeneration, that new life, that salvation never took place. What Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, what could it possibly be good for? Now, now this one's a little bit foreign to us because we get salt at the store, which you can keep in your cupboard for years and years and years, and it never loses its saltiness because it's, it's a compound that is secure, it's stable. But in Bible times, especially this area, they got their salt out of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth, and it's a very salty lake. In fact, it's so salty that there's no fish or anything in there. They can't live. What would happen is, is salt would then fuse itself on other organic compounds. And so they could literally pull the salt out of the Dead Sea, but it's not pure salt. It's salt and other stuff. And usually what happened, it'd be on some sort of organic stuff, like let's say plants. What happened is then they would crush it up and blend it in. But it was unstable in the sense that the salt could leave that compound, which means, scientifically, that you could have salt that was no longer salty. You could have stuff that used to have salt on it but doesn't anymore. And see, salt culturally was used for two things, flavoring, just like we use it, but also to preserve food, primarily meat. They didn't have any refrigeration. So if you got some choice meat and you wanted to save it for a day or two, you put that thing in a salt brine, and the salt kept off the rot, it kept off the decay. And Jesus says, don't you get it? If you follow me, you're salt. You preserve this world as part of the kingdom of God. You flavor the world with my righteousness and my spirit. But if you lose your salt, if you lose your faith, if you give up the relationship, if you choose to quit, what good is that? What good is salt that is no longer salty? And ultimately, Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, then it's not even really fit for the manure pile. And you go, well, that seems kind of harsh. And I agree. And if you turn to the end of the book, it doesn't say written by Adam. It's written by Jesus. And this is where we land. We land having to make some assessments of our life. 
we land having to ask the question, where are you? And where am I? And how, how is it going? How is that Bible reading going? How is your prayer life? When was the last time you went before God and just repented of your sin? Where's your spirit-filled zeal and devotion? How's your giving? Where are you serving? Who are you helping? What are you completing? Are you considering quitting? Have you already quit? See, if you're here and you go, you know what, I think I'm saved by Jesus. Maybe you're here and you go, I'm not saved by Jesus, and I want to be. I want that salvation. I want that new life. I want to be forgiven of my sins and made that new creation. I want the everlasting promises of Scripture. What if I'm a a tender that wants to become a disciple? I think according to Scripture, we repent of our sin, which means we go before God and we confess that we're guilty. We just agree with him. God, you call this sin, and now I'm calling it sin. The according to Scripture, we tell God of our need for him. What Scripture says is that if we believe in our hearts and if we confess in our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. If we begin to put our trust in him and say, I believe you are the Savior, I believe you are God, and I believe that you are who you say you are, not only do I want to be saved by you, but I want to follow you. You give your life to Jesus and you begin to follow him. Because every single one of us has a choice to make. Will you live for yourself or will you deny yourself? Will you ignore the cross or will you take up the cross? Will you seek to save your own life and ultimately lose it? Or will you lose your life and ultimately find it? Would you seek to gain the world or would you seek to forsake the world? Do you want to lose your soul Or do you want to keep it? See, only you can make the decision. But at Meadowland Church, we're about seeing lives changed by Jesus and disciples made. And our hope for you and our prayer for you and the reason that we do everything we do is because we want to see disciples made who would love God so much that they would want to see more disciples made. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, we admit that the words of Jesus are hard and difficult this morning. God, we come before you and we just confess what we know. We believe that you are who you say you are. We believe that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, we believe that you are the only way, that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We believe that you are the Messiah that you came and lived a holy, perfect life, fully God, fully man. And even though you were innocent, even though you knew no shame, you went to the cross and took my shame and my guilt. And that when you died on the cross, you died in my place for me. And we believe that you died and rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that all the world would have an opportunity to be saved by you put their trust in you and to live a life of abundant love and abundant living not just in heaven but also here on earth and God it seems like it would just be too simple today to throw up a hand in the air and say I'm all I'm all in for Jesus so God what I pray is that you would send us your Holy Spirit Lord just as you promised that we would comprehend and we would contemplate your words this morning. And God, I pray that there would be those of us here this morning who say, you know what, I'm in. I want to consider the cost, and I'm in. I want the salvation, I want the life, and Jesus, I give you all of me, and I'll take one step at a time to follow you and be your disciple. And God, we believe that you would do that, that you would call people to yourself for your glory and for their benefit. So that's what we ultimately pray this morning, God, that you would change lives that you would call people to be your disciples and that you would awaken our hearts, that you would awaken our minds, that you would awaken our souls to you this morning. 
that, Jesus, we would have the next few moments to respond to you. We would respond to you by worshiping you and surrendering to you because you alone are worthy of our lives and of our praise. Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen. Here at Meadowland, um, we consider giving a part of our worship time. So in a few minutes, the ushers.